Today's episode is brought to you by our Above Ground Risk team. Our petroleum economics and policy solutions provide an in-depth understanding and cross-country comparison of ENP activity, results, investment terms, and risk worldwide. This enables clients to evaluate, compare, and monitor above ground risk factors. Learn more about our offerings at www.ihsmarket.com energy. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm your host for today's show, Jessica Nelson. Today, I'm joined by Kat Hunter and David Gates from our exploration and production above ground risk group. The team recently published a report analyzing several oil producing countries' risk vulnerability, and they joined me today to share key highlights. Kat and David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Jessica. I mentioned your new report, which is titled Zones of Vulnerability, Mapping Where Downcycle Risk Lives On. In the report, you illustrate how vulnerable countries are to future declines in oil price. Can you describe what you mean by vulnerability in this context? Yeah, um, so I suppose what we're looking at is where countries are working on a very cyclical basis. Uh, where their reliance on their oil price for their economy and uh, their political framework to pick up, and where they're kind of taking moves to insulate themselves from that process. And it's interesting not only because of the theory of it, but also because of the practical implications for investors. Um, oftentimes, a vulnerable country will have problems following through on commitments made to investors. Um, so, you know, while with the best will in the world, they might be offering certain terms. Um, the fact that they're vulnerable, the fact that they haven't shorn up their economy, the fact that they haven't kind of thought forward can mean that they're unable to fulfill those um, obligations in the way they might have, have stated in the initial contract. So understanding where countries are vulnerable is particularly important when uh, investors are going in. But uh, David's looked a little bit more at this as well, so I'll just hand over to him to, 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 to take that further. Okay, uh, Kat, thanks. Just Just a few additional comments, I guess. To understand uh, what we mean by vulnerability, I think we have to start with our overall focus, the focus of all of our uh, research, which is on uh, above ground risk or the factors that together determine how attractive a country is as a place for investment in, in exploration and production. The other thing uh, you have to keep in mind, which, which Kat touched on, is that as we see it, whatever happens in politics, economics, or, or industry affects each of the others. So what happens in industry affects what happens in politics and economics and vice versa. In this context, a country is vulnerable when it finds itself really in a situation where changes in politics or economics or, or in the industry are likely to lead to a serious deterioration in its attractiveness as a place for investment in E&P. So that, that's really what we're driving at in terms of vulnerability. You just mentioned a few of the items um, and how they might be interconnected. Uh, how do you look and assess at the different uh, zones of vulnerability? How are they interrelated? Um, well, as I say, in, in this study and in, in most of our studies, we look at not just industry-specific developments, but also politics and economics. And in this particular report, we put together a number of indicators that would allow us to look both at politics and economics. I mean, the specifics are laid out in the report. 
you know, things like state capacity, political legitimacy, and the like on the politics side. And economic factors like transfer risk or primary fiscal balance, growth in GDP per capita, a whole series of things like this. And we use these in the current report kind of as to provide an overview of, uh, of developments in these particular uh, countries. That's kind of a first step. We thought we needed to go beyond that, as we often do. And so whereas we identified, I don't forget, five or six countries that appeared to have issues in terms of vulnerability. We then addressed those through a series of case studies where we really dig into the details. Now, you asked the question about how, how these factors are interrelated. And this is not, you know, not some, some complicated uh, theory that we've come up, to, up with. It's really quite straightforward. To start off, what happened this time around? We had a major decline in oil prices. The co immediate consequences of that were economic in that virtually every country we were looking at saw a deterioration in both their current account and in their fiscal balances. Those consequences or those developments almost automatically have political implications. But beyond that, the countermeasures that countries take will in turn have implications, let's say they take economic countermeasures, they'll immediately have consequences for, for the political sector and also for the industry. For example, I mean, if you've got a country concerned about its, its current account balance and decides to restrict capital flows, that will have immediate and, de in my view, detrimental uh, effects on, on investors. And that's the kind of linkage that we're trying to draw out. So how does a country descend into deeper zones of vulnerability and, and how does that impact the host country and the local energy industry? So um, I'll, t I'll take that one. But um, yeah, I think um, the way that we've uh, put it together, we've used our risk scoring framework to help us understand vulnerability. So as uh, Dave outlined, we're looking at kind of political metrics and how robust the political framework is, how how governments can make decisions and, and whether they can make effective decisions. Uh, and then against that, we're looking at sort of economic metrics and how vulnerable the economy, how, how strong the economy is and how dependent it is on hydrocarbons. And so, you know, how well placed is a country to deal with shocks and the shock in this instance being, you know, the collapse in oil prices. So where countries, you know, fall at the bottom end of the scale in those two metrics, um, what we found is that in situations of stress, um, different risk points can emerge. Um, and, and it's not necessarily that a country follows a sequence of risk points, but we have uh, noticed some sort of commonality between the producers we followed. We've mostly looked at producers that are heavily dependent on oil for their, um, for their economy. So at the sort of early stage of, of this, you know, we've had sustained fiscal and current account deficits, and that can lead to sort of constraints on the state and NOC spending, and pretty much all the producers we looked at uh, fell into that category. You know, NOC spending has, has, has pulled back in a number of countries, and that's important where there is a, a limited private investor pool. You know, um, NOC tends to be uh, to carry investment in, in quite a lot of the countries that we're looking at, and so any reduction in that spending may lead to a reduction in the future production profile. 
as, as things get more serious, you've also seen some producers look to loans for oil or, or conditional debt facilities. And depending on the kind of debt they're contracting, um, there's going to be risks associated with that as well. Um, quite a few people have gone for, or quite a few countries have gone for loans for oil and then struggled to pay back those uh, loans um, you know, as a, as a share of their crude uh, revenues and so have then had to restructure um, and, you know, it has left several countries in, in quite a vulnerable position where people have gone to the IMF or where countries have gone to the IMF or uh, multilateral institutions, that usually involves conditions, uh, conditions to do with sort of fiscal discipline, spending discipline and so on. Um, and while that might be positive for investors because there's a level of transparency to it because, you know, you can see countries committing to targets and, you know, trying to get their economy back on a track, there are often social kind of issues as a result of that. So, you know, lifting subsidies, for instance, can lead to uh, social unrest and difficulties um, at the political level. Um, so, so, yes, we've looked at a kind of range of, of different industry impacts. And I suppose uh, the country that sadly uh, charted most of the uh, impacts is, is Venezuela, um, moving from sort of operational disruptions. We've seen a lot of uh, production shut in as a result of that let alone the sort of humanitarian consequences of some of the issues that are going on. And then we've seen um, erratic changes in energy policy as well, and in, you know, ultimately uh, a collapse in state capacity. So that's the sort of extreme of where you can get to um, in, in that vulnerability kind of scale. Um, but most countries are kind of where we've looked at them have kind of remained at the early levels. And I suppose this time around we were looking at, you know, if there's a future oil price shock, what will happen next time? Were there any noticeable patterns to how countries responded to the oil price collapse? Uh, I would say yes. To begin with, many devalued their currencies or, or perhaps better uh, expressed, allowed their currencies to be devalued. Many cut back on imports, not just oil imports, but all merchandise imports. And also cut, there were cutbacks in government spending to deal with the uh, you know, the, the fall off in revenue as a consequence of, of lower oil prices. Others uh, drew down their international reserves where they had them, and many increased international borrowing. When we did the first assessment of vulnerability back in uh, 2016, we looked fairly hard at the question of what, if anything, might be done in terms of reserves, change, excuse me, in reforms. What changes might countries make to make their um, uh, oil and gas sector more attractive to investors. Our assessment at the time was that any uh, changes in reserves, or excuse me, reforms, would not occur uh, immediately, but would tend to occur over time as countries came to appreciate the importance of investment in oil and gas as a a, a possible productive response to, to the problems caused by low oil prices. As expected, not much has been done in terms of reforms, but here and there, selectively, there have been changes. And that was uh, a reason why one of the factors which led us to, to update the assessment now and uh, suggest to me that we'll be doing it more as, uh, as we move forward. And is the current environment of oil price recovery helping to improve the situation for any of these countries? 
you know, is there a direct correlation that as prices go up, their problems are alleviated? I guess the answer to that is yes and no. Uh, yes, in that there has been a, uh, uh, a direct improvement in many of the economic indicators. So that I think almost across the board, there has been an improvement in the uh, in the current account balance and in the fiscal balance in many of these countries. Venezuela, of course, and a few others are exceptions. But if you look across the board, I think that's a fair generalization. The question now, however, and the one which which we also tried to address, is that for, for most countries, what are they going to do now? Will they allow imports and government spending to increase now that now that uh, prices have improved? Uh, or will they keep keep on, if you will, keeping tight limits on spending? Will they take steps to rebuild their international reserves or pay down debt? And most importantly, will they take steps to increase investment in exploration and production? Some will, some won't, and that's what we were trying to determine. And in that regard, if you look at our report we just published, I think some of the case studies are particularly uh, informative in that regard. So as we, we cut through or cut deeper than the, the sort of overview statistical analysis, to look at, in detail at exactly what our country's doing in the area of, uh, of reforms. And even though some countries had to struggle, are there benefits that will accrue to the industry in general? Um, I guess I guess the the benefit that investors would have looked at perhaps at the start of the down cycle was improvements to EMP terms. But where we've seen those, it has been very selective. Um, not necessarily been a general rush to kind of improve fiscal terms. But what we have seen from countries is more kind of you know some flexibility on contractual terms. So, for instance, work programs uh, and perhaps local content commitments. And um, we've also seen some ad hoc movement on, you know, fiscal terms included for specific projects. Um, but most governments have been reluctant to kind of overhaul systems in a more uh, beneficial way for investors. I mean, of course, there's going to be some exceptions to that, but. Um, I think, you know, that might have been what was expected at the start of the down cycle, that more countries would move to kind of improve terms so that they could shore up production for the longer term. But, you know, as of, you know, as of today, that, that, that's not really happened, at least at a holistic level. And from your case studies, which countries handled things the right way and are maybe more positioned for an improved industry and economy moving forward? Well, I guess one of the countries that stands out as doing a lot of the things that you would expect them to do and doing them you know, in a way that was calculated to improve things is Angola. However, um, that's also a country that shows how difficult it is to turn things around you know, once you are in that kind of zone of vulnerability, so to speak. Um, Angola's made significant cuts to government spending. It's made significant cuts uh, to subsidies. Uh, it's improved terms, reduced local content, as we were talking about a little bit earlier, 
um, given fiscal kind of improvements to certain projects to enable them to move forward. It's also actually one of the few countries to have holistically improved terms, and we've seen some marginal fuels policy and also a new gas policy as well to enable um, developers to move forward with gas. However, you know, at the, at the macro level, the country remains vulnerable and may be going to the IMF later this year as well. So, um, so yeah, I think vulnerability isn't something that can be resolved overnight. Um, and that's also an important lesson from, from, this, uh, from this work that we've been doing. So what advice might you give to the industry, um, particularly if they're already active or considering activity in a potentially vulnerable country? Let me, let me start with that. Basically, I think the advice, whether you're talking to uh, governments or if you're talking to investors, is to understand what you are in, what your situ current situation is, or for uh, an incoming investor, what you're getting into. Uh, fundamentals such as we've been talking about and the interrelations between those fundamentals are absolutely critical. And I think most investors would, would recognize that. But it's the kind of thing, things change and you, you really have to have to first understand the fundamentals as they stand now, but also how they might change in the future, again, recognizing the critical importance of the interrelationships. So that if you've got a deterioration or an improvement in any one of these, these broad sectors, politics, economics, or industry, those developments will have consequences. And ultimately back, whatever the start point is, there will be implications back for the the industry and for your own investment in that industry. I guess from my side, um, it's about understanding how reliable uh, governments are likely to be as partners for investment and as, as hosts for investment. Um, if you understand that there's sort of weaknesses in their political framework or their economic framework, it maybe introduces a, an element of skepticism over you know, pledges made um, because if you think about it, the hydrocarbon sector is long-term, you know, 25, 30, 35-year contracts um, aren't unusual. Um, and so understanding where there are weaknesses and how those are likely to manifest themselves in a situation of stress doesn't mean you shouldn't invest there, but it does mean that you'll be able to better insulate yourself against those potential risks. Kat, David, thank you so much for joining me today to discuss some of these findings. Thanks, Jessica. It was my pleasure. Me too. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.